Hello and welcome to the Safeguarding in Sport podcast from High Speed Training. My name is Charlotte Leeming and I'm your host today. We really want this episode alongside our safeguarding course to support clubs and help eradicate child abuse, as this is a really emotional subject. Just a warning that certain things we talk about in this discussion might be upsetting for some listeners. And just before we start, we want to emphasise how, on the whole, grassroots clubs are really positive places for children and the community run by dedicated volunteers. But there's a minority who slip through the net and destroy lives. That's why it's crucial to highlight the importance of safeguarding in sport, something my first guest is passionate about. Hello and a warm welcome to former England footballer Paul Stewart. Paul has played for Manchester City, Liverpool and Spurs during his impressive career. Just a few years ago, though, Paul spoke out about the abuse he suffered as a child whilst playing for a youth team. He now campaigns to raise awareness and has worked with High Speed Training to develop a safeguarding in sport course, which is free to clubs. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much indeed. And we're also joined by Judy Rogers, who is the Safeguarding and Ethics Manager at Table Tennis England. Judy has been with the organisation, I think Judy, for more than 20 years and also is a former mayor. Hello, Judy. Hi, good morning. Yes, 24 years and counting. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> Commitment there, Judy. Thanks so much. Well, Paul, we'll start with you because... You've helped develop and put together this safeguarding course. Can you tell us what led you to that moment, your background? Yeah, I mean, in 2016, I came forward and waived my anonymity um, and disclosed the abuse that I I endured at the hands of a youth team coach uh, in Manchester. Um, From then, I... I started to work within the field of safeguarding, um, decided that it was important really that I educated myself around safeguarding also. So I did the courses right up to designated lead. And then since since then, I've been um, traveling around the country, visiting different organizations. In the main, I work with uh, football clubs and I deliver safeguarding sessions to the scholars, to the coaches, to parents, to anyone that really has a touch point with children. And when I was approached by high speed training, it really felt like it was just an extension of the work that I was doing. Um, I thought that we could make a difference. It is survivor led uh, in terms of there are courses out there, of course, that, 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 that other organizations have put together themselves. But I just think this this is um, this is something, uh, whilst comprehensive, just a little bit, bit different than your ordinary course. And of course, it was, you know, at the time I didn't uh, didn't consider inviting a lot of my uh, sporting colleagues. But then when I thought about it, and to make the course more interesting, I thought if we could have some contributions from not just survivors of abuse but famous stars, it would make the course far more engaging, uh, if that's the word. And reach a wider audience, I guess, of course, as yeah. well. I never wanted it. I never wanted it to be just football because that wouldn't have been right. We know that there's uh, many sports out there that don't have the resources or finance that football has. So this was always going to be aimed at grassroots sports organisations across the board. 
and Paul, I guess a big aim of this is the fact that, you know, we are going to speak out about this issue now. It was hidden for decades and decades, wasn't it? And you sort of swept things under the carpet or ignored signs. But you kept this secret for 40 years, didn't you? And, and what yeah. was it that made you speak out? Was it that you could help other young people? Well, that, that, that was my main goal when I came forward. Um, I was aware that many others uh, had been through the same scenario as myself. And, and I knew that they were, they were silent and didn't feel, and which is, which is understandable that they could come forward and, and um, tell their story. So it was, it was twofold. I wanted to try and come forward in, in the hope that I could help individuals um, start a recovery from, the, from what happened to them. I probably didn't realise that there would be the tsunami of individuals that came forward across the board, you know. Why I thought that it was just my bubble, if you will, and, 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 and not across the board, but then it just inspired me even more to, 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 to try and work in the field, try and, try and help, try and advise, you know. And I, I, think, I think having the lived experience with also uh, educating myself somewhat in, in safeguarding gives you that little bit of an edge when it comes to, to, to the workshops that I do being, 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 I think, more powerful, but also educational, which is why, you know, I, I, I then did it, but just made an extension of the deliveries that I do by, by developing the course with high-speed training. And authenticity definitely yeah. around that Paul and Judy Paul touched on their football you know we all think about football the money the resources you've worked with uh, table tennis England tell us about your background and, and what you sort of focus on when it comes to safeguarding and trying to protect children and young people yeah <clears throat> I mean we as a sport don't have the same resources as football have um I mean, I, I'm fortunate that I've been there right from the beginning when safeguarding first became something that sports started to think about, uh, which was back in around about 2000. And uh, at that point, I wrote our first safeguarding guidance um, and became responsible for leading on safeguarding, which I do to this day. Um, and so... It was all very new in those days. Nobody really understood. There were a couple of cases, um, but I think um, we were all, there, there were probably about six of us, six sports right at the beginning. Um, and then the Child Protection in Sport Unit was formed, largely as a result of the six sports coming together. And Judy, um, sorry, what year was that? 2000? 2000 yes unbelievable that it was only in 2000 you know that this yeah. is happening yeah i think before that national governing bodies the majority of them had very very tiny staff i mean sports development was new someone said to me in the early 1990s before i worked for table tennis england but was a volunteer and they said would i like to be the league development officer and i remember saying what's one of those and nobody knew so we thought we'll make it up as we go along but safeguarding is a major issue um and i think it's come more public more to the fore 
because of the we've got uh we're able to communicate better we have social media um things have moved on in terms of it which has also become um something that is a danger for young people as well as being a a, a positive so it's a negative and a positive um but for the majority of of the apart from the really big governing bodies like football most of us have a very limited team um currently my team is me um and um i <laughs> i did have an assistant but she's recently left but even that was very very new so and that is the same for the majority of of the governing bodies apart from football rugby cricket tennis where they have more resources um so we rely on my team is my team of volunteer welfare officers so this is the the same i guess up and down the country especially for the smaller sports clubs you know they might have hundreds of members paul and judy might be but uh, they've not got resources the volunteers are, are short on time so paul how have you got into clubs and, and sort of tried to emphasize that you can't be pushing this to the background anymore that this really is a priority yeah I, do you know even within football at grassroots level uh, all the welfare officers or safeguarding officers are volunteers and some of the football clubs have uh, uh, upward of uh, 1,500 cohorts, youngsters that, uh, that, are, that are with their sports club. And you, you have then maybe two or three welfare officers or safeguarding officers. And these people have got uh, full-time jobs as well. Uh, and as Judy will tell you, working in safeguarding within sport isn't a, a nine-to-five uh, existent it's 24 7 and I just wanted to to really emphasize the need for and, and I, I do because I, f I feel sometimes that they may think that I'm criticizing the fact that you know they don't have the time but that, well that's that's not the case I think they they do extraordinary things you know over and above the what they do uh, for work and they do it for the right reasons uh, for me, it's just it's just about you know when you look at the amount of children that some of these organisations are uh, working working with or, or have have on their uh, books. Moreover, then you know it becomes I think a breeding ground for for individuals that want to abuse. And now I don't mean just the abuse that I endured. There are many forms of it. Whether they're just abusive people. And once they infiltrate an organisation, you know, we have this misconception that, the, you know, that what the media have made of these people, that they wear Rain Max and the Scruffy and so forth and so on. But that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. They are the nicest people you would wish to meet. They gain the trust of the people within the organisation or the sports club. And that's when they are able to perpetrate the abuse or whatever abuse they want to. So I just want, I, you know, the work I do and the, and the course that I've developed, I just want it to be a layer that can help educate um, parents, uh, coaches, anyone that's, that has a touch point with children, yeah. it can educate them. And Judy, you, you've seen the course. 
What did you make of it? Do you think it will be, you know, beneficial for people and, and that as many people see it as possible, you know, anyone who works with children and, and parents as well? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are two sides to this. There are, we put up in sport uh, as many barriers as we can to make it difficult for people who want to come into sport to 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 harm our young people and also our adults as well. Don't let's forget that we, we have vulnerable adults as well. Um, and so the barriers are there. And the other thing is the education and making people aware so that people are aware of what they're seeing and, and, and they recognise that it is not wrong to report. And I don't care. I don't care if people report and there is no concern. I would rather people call me and say, I'm worried about this. And, and so going on what Paul said, I remember, oh, a number of years ago now, someone actually saying to me, um, I was delivering some safeguarding training and uh, they came and said, well, how do I recognise a paedophile? How do I know? What do they look like? And I said, well, the easiest way is to look at the person in your club that you think is the least recognize the least person you would expect the nicest person the one person you would not expect to happen and i said that's it there is no uh photo fit there is no one size fits all the irony of that conversation was that two days later the headlines in the local paper were local school teacher and table tennis coach um is banned for life from teaching for downloading pornographic material. And and the club were absolutely shocked and shaken to the core because it was the last person they expected. So there is no flashing light above somebody's head that says, beware, I'm a paedophile. So you have to have the barriers and you have to have the education. And, and it is the people within the sport that are the best, the police to help us, if you like. And in that, I include parents. Parents really need to be looking at the courses as well. Parents should be asking questions and we want them to ask questions because they're the best police in sport that you have got. And so many parents, I'm afraid, still see sport as an opportunity to offload the kids for a couple of hours. Childcare um, on a Saturday or Sunday. Or, or in our case, most of our table tennis clubs run in evening. So Friday night, oh, we'll, we'll drop them off between seven and nine and, and we can go off and do something. And Judy, unbelievably uh, now, sometimes the parents don't even really know that coach. They might just drop them off in a car yeah. park and say, pick yeah. up in two hours or they'll go on a trip or something. So... Parents need to be a lot more across this, don't they? They absolutely do. I mean, we have in October, uh, we work with Child Protection Sport Unit. There is the Parents in Sport Week. Um, and I'm looking to hold a webinar for parents. So Paul, what are you? your thoughts on that? Because you didn't tell anybody about your abuse till 40 years later. So how did you feel at the time that you couldn't tell your parents? And, um, and how involved were they with the club at the time? Yeah, well, 
My parents were very involved in the club. Uh, my dad, he used to watch me play every game that I played. Um, what, what, and I think Judy made some great points there um, regarding these people. And, and in his fact, this, the, 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 my abuser was, uh, he was a coach, but he was just, he was just the nicest bloke you'd wish to meet whilst he was with in other people's company. Unfortunately with me, when I was alone, he was a complete monster. But they are the most manipulative. And to be honest with you, if they were business-minded, they'd probably be the most successful business people because they recognise uh, situations and are able to manipulate that situation so that, do you know, my abuser used to say to my parents, oh, your Paul's a really good player. I think I can help him uh, realise his dream. Uh, he would bring gifts from my parents. And back then, it was, it was a scenario where they didn't just have to groom your, your mum and dad and your brothers, but the wider circle within your family. And what you then become is isolated. And you don't believe you've got anywhere to turn. You think, well, if I tell my dad, then my dad will kill them and he'll go to prison, I'll lose my dad. My brothers, they would never receive the gifts of sportswear that they were receiving. They won't have that. But then you are, you know, they are so clever. They, they, they manipulate you to make you think that you have to do this if you want to be a sports star. And as a child, you dream of being a sports star. And I always call them dream makers, uh, Lottie, because they, they, they sell this dream to you. They make you believe that you have to go through what you're going through if you want to become uh, a sports star. And like, like uh, Judy said, you wouldn't recognise them. You would no way in any shape or form uh, recognise who that individual is and I thought it was great to say well do you know the least likely person you think is the abuser nine times out of ten is the one that would be uh, the abuser um, so yeah and, and the parents side of it you know I still I still and you, you made a great point about they drop them off open the car door and they run out you know parents should be handing their children over uh, when they go to a sports setting. They should have asked the questions about safeguarding policies. Who's the safeguarding officer? Do you have the contact details? And moreover, if I have a concern, uh, who do I speak to? Now, I don't think that's difficult as a parent, Lottie, and, but parents are still, still not doing them basic things. And Paul... Um... I'll put my hand up there. You know, my son has played for his local team. You know, we used to be very involved and watching all the time. And then I don't think I've ever, ever asked who is the welfare officer, well, who's in charge of safeguarding if we've got a concern. To put it in context, you know, I heard a story about a rugby coach and that he used to coach one day a week, the children uh, at, his, at his club. And there was a parent that had two sons at the club and he used to come every week drive up, open the door, the kids run out, and, it, and, and he never asked a question. And it went on for a year, this, where he didn't ask a question. And in the end, one night, the, the coach, whilst the, this parent was turning, he walked over to the car, and the parent wound the window down, and the coach said, can I have your car keys and wallet, please? And this, this parent looked at him as if he was talking another language. He said, no, can I have your car keys and wallet? 
And I said, what for? He said, well, for a year you've been coming here. You've been dropping off your children. You don't know who I am. You've not asked me any questions. Now these are supposedly your most prized possessions, but you've never asked a question. I asked for your car keys and wallet and you, you're, you're straight away on the defensive. And I think that's a perfect example in which, and I thought it was great from the coach to do that, but a perfect example of what parents do. So the course gives them that information that they must ask, you know, and, and also uh, Judy will, will, you know, and I loved when she said, you know, I want people to come to me and say they've got a concern. So coming to you, Judy, I mean, what measures do you have in place then if there are concerns, if someone came to you and said, I'm, I'm worried about that situation there between, you know, that coach and that child, what steps would you take? We always listen and we always take them seriously. Um, and I mean, each case is individual. Each case is different. Um, we encourage, I do so much training within table tennis. We do training for our welfare officers. We do, obviously, as we've said, we're going to be doing webinars for parents. We do webinars for our parents of our performance players. Um, we do webinars for our coaches, webinars for, for clubs, so that we get the message out. And picking up on something Paul said, I am available seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And those calls don't come in <laughs> in office hours. You don't get the calls at one o'clock or two. You might get them from the police or the statutory agencies. But if somebody is worried, that call's going to come in a past 10 at night, Sunday morning at nine o'clock. And personally, I don't care. Make that call. If you are worried, and, and that's the message we put out to all of our clubs, all of our, our anyone involved in table tennis, is if you see something that you, makes you feel uncomfortable, come and talk to us. Call me, maybe talk to the welfare officer first, but all the welfare officers know that the next point of contact is me. We have that direct link through and, and we take everything seriously. We listen to what people say and then we'll act upon whatever it is they're telling us. And I think, Judy, them Judy. low... Yeah, oh, the, sorry, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying them, them low-level concerns... You would rather have them, wouldn't you, than somebody not say anything. Six months down the line, you've got a major problem. So the more low level that you're actually receiving as a club, it's actually a safer club because it's being addressed. You'll have clubs where people will see something and think, is there something going wrong there? Well, I'm not really sure. I'm friendly with the coach, so I don't want to, to sort of talk behind his back and stuff like that, Lottie. So you then become a scenario where it's, it's, too, it's too late, unfortunately, because you haven't, you haven't reported that, that concern. And you know what? Usually, if you see something is wrong, it usually is wrong, you know? And a lot of people talk to me that work within the, um, within the safeguarding field, say, if your gut feeling says something is wrong, your gut feeling is normally right. Mm. And I think, Paul... Um 
high profile people like yourselves coming out and talking I mean that must have really I think as you say opened the floodgates people thinking well if you know that that professional the form of professional footballer can speak about this then then I can you know and you would hope that that is the case yeah you do feel that and you hope that it's a case I mean I, I'm fortunate I've been given a platform because of the sport that I played in um, because of the teams that are played for. So I've always wanted to use that platform for positive, to try and, to try and help others that don't have a voice. You know, there are people out there that are still suffering and they don't, they don't have a voice. So I, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm not just speaking for myself, but I'm, I'm also speaking out on their behalf as well. Paul, I know you were passionate about going around, you know, the grassroots clubs and and speaking to them. You've also been working with yesterday or a couple of days ago with Brighton as well, uh, going into the Premier League. What What's the difference there? We know that top tier football has a lot of money and resources uh, that the small clubs don't. But what, you know, how it's, do you try and help oh, both ends of the, of the sport? Yeah, the, compa the comparison, even if you go out of the Premier League into when I work, where I work with the EFL, the Premier League has every resource under the sun because they've got the finances to be able to employ these people, you know, from, from player care right the way through the education sector to the safeguarding and they have... Safe, heads of safeguarding, they then have heads of safeguarding at foundation. You drop down to, to the EFL and some clubs are, are fighting to, um, to, to, you know, for their existence, if you will. And what, you know, I, I, I have a problem with this and I'm vocal about this problem. As soon as uh, a club is struggling for money, the first person or first department that suffers, what I see, is the welfare department. And that is because they're a direct cost. They're not bringing money into the club. And if they don't, if they don't sack them or relieve them of the duties, they'll then give them other duties to do on top of being a safeguarding officer. Now, Judy, as she said, the calls don't come in nine to five. They come in at all hours. And for me, the reason I'm vocal about it, because if clubs do that, it, it says to me that we're not really concerned about the children in our charge because we're letting these people go. And then obviously when you, the, the, you go into the grassroots side of it, Lottie, and it's, uh, they're all volunteers. And a lot of them... Um, are bullied into that position because they turn up every week and they're there to watch and they're there to get involved, right? You can be the safeguarding officer. And that's, that's again, uh, a scenario you get when, you, when, when you're working with volunteers. So, so it's yeah. still like an afterthought almost, yeah. that position. Yeah. And Judy, how, how do you find that? Are you sort of fighting for resources, for time to do things and to train volunteers, make sure that this is a priority? I think actually in table tennis, we've actually improved. Um, I mean, and I, I take on board what Paul said. There was one point um, when I was uh, in the, the, the bit between 2000 and 2015 where I was the lead national officer for volunteer management, disability, equalities, safeguarding, um and and drop into that a little bit on premier clubs 
I designed the program, the original program we have for the Premier Clubs. So I was juggling all of, of those. Um, I'm now just safeguarding. I am now only safeguarding. Um, so table tennis has recognised the significance and the importance of, of it. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate in that I've been involved in the game before I even was employed by them. Um, I've been involved in the game for 35 years, still can't play it, still a rubbish player. Um, but um, I know the people because my daughter and younger son were on the circuit. Certainly my daughter was top 10 um, cadet and junior. I've done the circuit with them. So I know the people, the people know me. So there is that sort of trust uh, and, and, and knowledge. So I'm lucky in that. And table tennis, I've always talked about it being a family. It is a very close-knit sport, despite the fact that we do have sort of probably two, 300,000 people playing table tennis in this country. Our problem is they're not all doing it within the club setup. But we make ourselves available. We are there. I'm there um, to listen to the concerns. And before people get absolutely panic-stricken, the majority of the concerns that people come to us with are just they need education. It's poor practice. And I spend a lot of my time talking to not just coaches, but everyone involved with the sport and trying to show them the right way to do things for their protection, as well as the protection of the young people and the vulnerable people within our sport. But don't get me wrong, I am there to get rid of anyone in our sport who comes in with the intent of causing harm to our young people. And we take everything seriously. Judy, and I think sometimes we, we forget, don't we, to say that the majority of individuals that are within our sports are doing it for the right reason. Do you know, they do it because they want to help children develop. They want to help children try and realise their dreams. It's just unfortunate that other people infiltrate that because they know they can get access. So we, we must never forget that 99.9% .9 of the people that are involved in our sports are doing it for the right reason and they do it uh, they do excellent jobs around the country, so. Yeah, well said, Paul. And Paul, just, I mean, after everything you went through, I mean, you have had some amazing, amazing, you've had some amazing achievements, you know, stuff of dreams in your football career, <laughs> uh, scoring, you know, in the FA Cup final at Wembley. But you have talked about being in a dark place at that time. So, I mean, did you enjoy those moments or was it always overshadowed by this terrible thing that happened to you? It was always overshadowed, Lottie, and, and to be honest with you, I, I, at the time, I didn't realise it was because of that problem. I genuinely thought I'd blocked it away, but obviously it manifested itself in the problems that I had with drink and drugs, the depression. So I didn't feel, I always felt that something wasn't quite right, and, and I just thought I had one of them personalities that, that you know, addictive personalities. And, and uh, when I look back now, I, I, I so wish I had this head on that I've got now back then when I was playing my football career. And I often say, I, you know, as good 
uh, as the career was. I think it could have been better. I played 32 times for Liverpool. I think I could have played 332 times for Liverpool. But at the time I was there, I was in self-destruct mode and I was doing drugs. Uh, I played three times for England. I think I could have played 50 times for England. I, you know, I say, and it's on the documentary that I did, the first, I mean, if you'd have told me when I was a child that you'll play for England one day, you know, I would have said, that's all I ever want. The first, absolute first get-together we have when I was selected in the squad, I turn up blind drunk. I turn up blind drunk and I'm, I'm being selected, to, you know, from a country. So it was always overshadowed my career with with with. with you had the weight of this secret, didn't you? And yeah. Well, you you didn't feel able to talk about it as a child. Are you sort of disappointed and bitter at all that in those years afterwards, even as an adult playing, that there never was any conversation about any of these things in, in the world of football where you could have maybe just thought, you know, this is my time to, to tell people and open up and get help? I, I, like I said, I so wish, Lottie, that there was someone that I could have approached, could have spoken to, um... Back then, there wasn't even duty of care, as, as, as Judy will tell you. We didn't even have a duty of care, never mind a safeguarding officer. Um, what, I, what, I, what I try not to do, Lottie, is dwell on the past anymore. As you, as you alluded to earlier, 42 years before I said anything, well, my abuser has, has held that over me for 42 years and I, I decided that no more. So I, I try not to dwell on the past and I try and look, what, what effect can I have for the future? And that's what drives me on to do the work that I do, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, turning it into something positive and helping yeah. other people, Paul. And with this course, Judy, I mean, do you think the fact that, you know, you've got this course available now, it's completely free. We can't have any of this. Oh, no one's got any money in this situation. So... Judy, I bet you wish this had been around a lot sooner, a lot really. Sooner, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. I mean, this is a perfect course that we can use um, as as a, a, um, something that all of our clubs can access uh, and club officers and welfare officers, coaches. We will still promote the face-to-face -face workshop for our coaches who have that position of trust that won't change um but where where they've done the face-to-face -face workshop after that we ask them to do a renewal now it's been every three years because there's a cost involvement in that too this means that we can be much more flexible and we can ask them to do it every year because there is no cost to them uh, and 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 it means it keeps the safeguarding in the front of their their heads, their brain. It's there, so that they they're aware, um, and and so they're thinking about their behaviour. So, but they're also looking at other people's behaviour. And the more we can flag this up, it's yet another barrier. It's those barriers I talked about. Let's make it so difficult for the people that mean to harm our children to get into sports that there's nothing for them there. Yeah, it's another layer of protection we, when we look at yeah. it, isn't it, Judy? You know, and the more layers yeah. we have of protection, the safer the, the children in our charge will be. Mm, absolutely. And and I have every respect for you, Paul, and and you're my hero. 
Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Paul, you're an inspiration to so many people. I mean, it used to be for your football and, and, and the career there. And now, of course, it is for this, for speaking out, for bringing this to people's attention so we're not sweeping such awful cruelty under the, under the carpet. So, Paul, just to sort of finish on, I guess, what do you hope the legacy of this course will be and what will success now look like for you? When I deliver my sessions, I have to relive my childhood, which can be very emotive and I can get emotional, especially when I talk about the devastation I've heaped on my family because of my drug use and my drinking, so forth and so on. The legacy will be this, that if I don't turn the TV on in 20 years time, or if I do turn the TV on in 20 years time and I see a, a, a lot of individuals bearing their soul because we didn't get it right, I would then feel that I hadn't done my job. I would feel, and now it could come from any walk of life. Um, I just hope that we make safeguarding uh, just a normal word. It's just something that we do uh, instinctively instead of people look at safeguarding and they think, oh my God, rules, regulations, uh, do I really want to get involved in that? What we need to do is make it just every day part of our uh, joining sports clubs, uh, joining any, any organisation extra uh, curricular activity and, 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 and it becomes the norm. And because what will happen is if parents do that, their children will then grow up to see it being the norm and they will automatically go and ask the right questions when they're, when they're leaving their child at any sort of activity. So that, that really would be the legacy for me, uh, Lottie. And Paul, before we let you go, you talk about it, you know, with the workshops, with the in-person events you do, it, it's traumatic, you bring up your story. I guess with this course, your story's out there, you've got some famous names like Gary Lineker, some fantastic support in that course that people can go and watch uh, themselves. It's survivor-led, it's very authentic. Just before we leave, tell us what's in that course and why it's different to what's already out there, please. I, th I think more, more the fact that you have um, some high-profile sports stars in there. Now, I have done courses, and Judy will have probably written the book of courses, and sometimes it's very difficult to get the end user to retain the information. You need to keep them, so you don't make the course too long, first and foremost, but I think the videos with people that they recognise it encouraged them to stay on the, um, on the course and complete the course. And what you've got is you've got these, these famous individuals and then in between you've got the most important part. Uh, and and, and not, I, you know, I apologise to my colleagues that have contributed, but for me, the in-between bit is what we want the end user uh, to, to retain. Do you know, a coach has to complete the safeguarding training otherwise they'll lose their coaching badge. So they'll do the safeguarding training, but are they taking it in? Are they really, really retaining the information? I'm not so sure, but it's, they have to do it because they'll lose a coaching badge otherwise. So this is, you know, engaging and authentic. They'll, they'll recognise people in the course as well yeah. from the TV and from the world yeah. of sport. But as you say, at the end of the day, it's getting that important information, how to spot the signs of abuse and how to eradicate it from sport yeah that's exactly right 
And Judy, just briefly, if you can, you, you know, this course, you've got to make sure everyone's doing it. Are you the parents, the volunteers, the coaches? Yeah, we can make it available to them. And, and, and Paul is right, you know, in safeguarding training, it should not be a tick box exercise. We want to engage with people. We want them to think. We want them to, to be the eyes and ears. I can't be everywhere. Um, I wish I could, but I can't. So, you know, we rely on our members to be our eyes and our ears, and we want them to be equipped, if you like, with the knowledge so they know what they're looking at. They kind of know what they're looking for, but it becomes something that is inbuilt, something they do, as Paul has said, automatically. Um, and and the second they're not comfortable with something, they're on that phone to me. And 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 hopefully soon I will have a, a, a deputy again, so there'll be two of us. But you know, um, but certainly to me, and and then we can listen, and we can work with them. Thanks so much, Paul and Judy, for your insight and experience around this important issue, Paul. We really appreciate this is such an emotional subject for you to talk about, but we know you're a real advocate for speaking out so that as a society, we can stop child abuse being hidden away. And if anyone listening is affected by anything we've discussed today, there's support available. You can contact the NSPCC 24 hours a day. Just go to nspcc.org.uk and our Safeguarding in Sport course, which is absolutely free, can be found at highspeedtraining.co.uk slash sport. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.